As part of the re-release of Men in Marriage, Canon Press is making the full interview with George Gilder here on Man Rampant available for free. If you enjoyed this episode, you can get Men in Marriage, the new Canon edition, now at dadsareback.com. Back when I was young and callow, I was given the great privilege of participating in what is now called cancel culture, long before that phrase was attached to it. Not only so, but I also had the additional privilege of having it be all George Gilder's fault. In the early 80s, I had a weekly cultural and political column for our local newspaper. I was the token house conservative and was uneasily tolerated. Then something similar happened in that I was invited to do a comparable radio spot for a radio station over in Pullman, KWSU. I was a weekly conservative voice, which caused some consternation, but not too much. But then one day I said something that I had learned from George Gilder and the progressives of the Palouse went up like a sheet of flame. I didn't name them intoleristas until later, but they were doing their thing from our moment of first acquaintance. So what did I say that was so outrageous? I said that men are by nature dominant and that no society on earth can change that. But if they insist on messing with it, what they can do is arrange to have constructive dominance transformed into destructive dominance. Men can build things or they can break things. In first grade, when the fine motor skills of little girls are about nine months ahead of the boys, and they are all assigned the task of making precise letters on that wide-ruled paper with the bark still in it, the girls excel. They dominate the classroom within the established institutional rules. Do the boys take this quietly? By no means. They shoot spitballs and tip over chairs. They will be a force to be reckoned with in that classroom. That lasts until the school nurse comes in and hits them all on the head with a chemical rock. So I said, in effect, that women are essential to civilization and this naturally outraged the feminists. But as I said earlier, this is something I learned from George Gilder. When female sexuality is subordinated to male sexuality, what you get is the ethos of a biker gang or a ship full of pirates. When male sexuality is subordinated to the female, the end result is alabaster cities. This is an affront to feminists everywhere who believe that first-rate women should be allowed to act like third-rate men. And he is that kind of teacher Gilder is. A number of his concepts are exceptionally sticky. They stay with you. Sometimes you read a book written by some guy and you're glad you did, but you can't remember anything from it a year later. It was nourishing, but it is kind of like trying to remember a bowl of Cheerios you ate three months ago. George's books are not about this fact or that fact out there in the world, but rather they are sets of observations that help you to make sense of the world. Another way of putting this is that George is a worldview thinker, and he has this gift of explaining principles, principles, not methods. And in a world gone mad, we should all be taking special care to attend to every lifeline of sanity we come across. Welcome to Man Rampant. It's uh, wonderful to be with you again. Uh, we're delighted to have George Gilder with us today. Uh, George is a prolific author. I have benefited wonderfully from your books over the years. Thank you, thank you for writing them. Thank you for making them available on the market. All right. Well, you've generated a hundred <laughs> books from them, so well. I st Stand in awe of your productivity and wisdom. And I, I tell people that I write to make the voices in my head go away. And it's not, <laughs> it's not working. Well, that's but. sort of why all of us write, isn't it? All of us rampant men. We, we write to, to get it appease up. those voices. <laughs> all right. Well, it's wonderful having you here. Uh, it's an honor to meet you. And it's an honor to explore some of these things with you. So thank you. I, I wanted to begin by asking you for a little bit of history. Um, one of the, the, the first book of yours that I read was Sexual Suicide. Yeah. And this was decades ago that I read it. Mm. And then I reread it, a revision, Men in Marriage, uh, came out. And then I've read it since again, uh, read the revision. And I wanted you to um, maybe talk a little bit about the, just the history, the story of how sexual suicide came to be and the impact it had on you and how it morphed into Men in Marriage. Well, I was, uh, this was before I got married. 
So I uh, was really preoccupied with sex since then. I managed to get beyond that, obviously. Right, but, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, so here I was a kid in Cambridge, Massachusetts with feminism erupting all around me. Uh -huh. And my initial um, response was, great, uh, this would liberate women to gratify me, was essentially my uh, somewhat callous uh, right. idea. Then I began thinking about it more deeply, and it became evident to me that uh, these feminists in Cambridge uh, were really ignoramuses, <laughs> and, and they, uh, they didn't understand themselves or the world, right. and that uh, liberation really doesn't work that way. Right. And, and so, so I found myself writing sexual suicide. How, about, how old were you when you... I was in my 20s. I was really young. I mean, I was probably 25, maybe. Mm -hmm. I wrote The Party That Lost Its Head, a political book with uh, Bruce Chapman mm -hmm. about the Goldwater years. Um, right after leaving college at age 22. So I was, I was about 25. Okay. And I was editor of the Ripon Forum magazine. I wrote a, an essay on the daycare bill, the Mondale Javits daycare bill, which okay. was gonna fund daycare for- uh, Everybody. For yeah. everybody. Uh -huh. And I defended Nixon's veto. <laughs> Okay. And, and a lead editorial in the Ripon Forum, which is a liberal Republican magazine of the yeah. Ripon Society in Cambridge, yeah. Mass. And so it was uh, an unusual act for the editor of the Ripon Forum to support Richard Nixon for anything very much and to support him vetoing this holy writ of yeah. legislation from Jacob Javits and Walter yeah. Mondale uh, was considered really outrageous. And it was wonderful because the next day, there on uh, the Today Show were a group of women from the Ripon Society denouncing me and, their, <laughs> and my editorial. And I had never gotten on national television this way. The Today Show was Barbara Walters, the big show of the yeah. year. And I thought it was just wonderful. And, uh, and uh, I'd been trying to f figure out for years how to arouse the passionate interest of women. And clearly, <laughs> I had hit pay dirt with, uh, yeah. with this criticism of the Mondale Javits daycare bill, which was going to pay for everybody's yeah. daycare so women could all, all go to work. And I, I said, uh, here the welfare state had driven away the fathers of, in the black family. Mm -hmm. And uh, now they were gonna take away the mothers as well. Uh -huh. And uh, their idea of a perfect liberation was orphanhood. <laughs> and, and I th thought this was an outrageous idea. Anyway, uh, I was fired as editor okay. of the Ripon Forum. There is still cancel culture way back in the 1960s or whatever right. it was. And, uh, and so that was your first act of, you hoisted the Jolly Roger with that one? Yeah, that, that's, that's when I... I uh, okay. And so how did sexual suicide uh, I, I germinate out of that? It, I wrote it a lot, a lot at Café du Monde in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and, and just generally having a happy time in Louisiana, writing away and appeasing the voices in my head. <laughs> and out came... Uh, sexual suicide. Okay. What impact did that have on you in your career? Well, it, an excerpt from it was published called The Suicide of the Sexes in Harper's Magazine okay. by Nelson Aldrich, who uh, was a, an editor there, and he, he edited it and ran it, and it was a cover story, and it was the biggest selling cover issue on the newsstands of Harper's for a decade or something. It was... and and it provoked so many letters that I had to spend two, the subsequent two issues of Harper's Magazine, each had big letters sections entirely devoted to answers for my outrageous claims that men and women were different. Right. So what's, uh, 
How many years separated sexual suicide and men in marriage? Well, sexual suicide was not as big a success. It was a big success to Scandal, and okay. I got lots of publicity, and I was on all over television, and, and I debated all the feminists, and, and I was on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, however, that was... Yeah. I, I could tell that story, but you probably don't want want to hear it. It's it's sort of a long story, but it was an amazing. I was the audience charged the stage with uh, a big group of women from the audience bearing a coffin, and said, so "I represented all the women killers of the centuries." And he capitulated to this protest movement in the audience and let them come to the stage and interrupt me and uh, give their speech about what a despicable misogynist I was. Right. The result was what was a wonderful launch for my book became a big snarl a snarl and confusion. And, and the book didn't succeed as well. It succeeded. There was a paperback, a Bantam paperback. It was. It I, was, I got a copy. It, right it wasn't the kind of huge bestseller that was anticipated by New York Times books right. when they made it their first book. And, and they may, there may have been some flaws in the Times as a book publisher. This was the, their first major book publishing venture. venture. And so it, but anyway, I went on and um, wrote a bunch of other books and, and including Naked Nomads, which showed how uh, single men did less well than single women of the same age and credentials. So how, how could discrimination be a significant factor and, right. and showed that single men were the key problem of every society unless they were linked to women and thus linked to the future through the wombs of women. Mm -hmm. uh, they really... Uh, didn't become fully productive of uh, men and society. So, so that was Naked Nomads, which just continued the theme right. of... of uh, and then I wrote a book called Visible Man, which mm -hmm. uh, showed how the welfare state destroyed the black family. And it, it was... It was uh, a real, I lived in the inner city to do it and mm -hmm. interviewed lots of men in the welfare culture and... Harvard sociology department adopted it as a right. text for their, and it was regarded to be a great contribution to sociology, and it sold 700 copies in the first year. <laughs> uh, but I also had signed a two-book deal, because I also was going to do a blockbuster theoretical book uh, with Visible Man, and uh, that was to be called The Pursuit of Poverty. Okay. And uh, it, it became wealth and poverty. It quickly came clear to me that, you, that poverty we will always have with us, as some eminent yeah. person said. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but what we got to explain is wealth. And so it became wealth and poverty. It was adopted by Ronald Reagan as his thematic book for his administration and became a global bestseller everywhere. I mean, it was a best, it was a number one bestseller for six months in France. Uh, you know, it just... France. And Reichtum and Armut was the German version. It was a bestseller in Germany. I mean, it really was, it took off, it was yeah. an amazing, uh, amazing experience. And everybody wanted to publish my next book. And and I told him my next book was going to be about sex. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and they, they, were very, uh, uh, they were very excited about that. They thought this, this, this was surely going to compound the bestseller yeah. into orbit. And so Men and Marriage is, it follows on after Wealth and Poverty. Yes. Okay. So I wrote Men and Marriage. It really is a, new, a completely new book, really. There, there are a few uh, coincidences which were later added to sexual suicide. But I sent out Men in Marriage to all these publishers. There are 10 of them at least who were bidding for my next book. They all accepted it. They all said, oh boy, we're so excited with this and, uh -huh. and how much can we pay you? And then 
in uh, each one, all 10 of these, and maybe I'm exaggerating, it might be eight, it might, yeah. but just amazing unanimity. Every publishing house in New York, first some male leader of the house um, accepted it. And then they called me, oh, George, this is a fabulous book. You all have no trouble publishing this. But unfortunately, we have a special problem in our house. Yeah. And, and we, we just can't. It's just not for us. Right. And in each case, a group of feminist women in, in that New York publishing house rose up and, and managed to stop publication of my book. It's, it's amazing to right. see. Uh, this is way back in the 1960s. And uh, this idea that this, this is the way the left is. Right. It cannot bear... Uh, cancel, cancel culture yeah. is a new phrase, yeah. but not a new thing. A new thing. So, yeah. And this happened over and over, and it was the same words. It was just amazing. It was always, we have a special problem. We, we, you know, we have some special feminist women who are in pivotal roles, and they'll resign or something. And right. so, so I, had to, I got it published in the end in uh, Gretna, Louisiana, Pelican <laughs> Books of Gretna, uh -huh. Louisiana. And it, it even had trouble down there. The editor, who was the owner of, of uh, Pelican Books, was very confident that every, all was well, and he agreed to publish it. But, uh, but he had to fight. He had to. Selmy Fruken was the editor, and and he agreed to let a feminist edit it. And uh -huh. uh, so I had a, quite a struggle. And then Simon & Schuster, which was the uh, basic books published uh, Wealth and Poverty, but I had a contract for my next book with Simon & Schuster, uh -huh. uh, and, which was Spirit of Enterprise about yeah. Idaho. Right. And they said they wouldn't accept this is my next book. You know, they wouldn't let anybody else publish Men and Marriage is my next book because they had the right to my to next, next book. book and they couldn't publish Men and Marriage. So, so I had to pretend that Men and Marriage is a reprint of Sexual Suicide. And I renamed chapters so it looked like a lot of the chapters have the, it pretends to be a rewrite of sexual suicide. And it confused a lot of people, uh -huh. but it actually, if you read it's it, a new it's, book. it's all new stuff. So um, I should refer to something I mentioned in the opening uh, monologue for this, but cancel culture was going on back then because I, uh, for beginning, I think in 1980, I, I, I started, I wrote a weekly column for our local newspaper. And then I was invited shortly after that to do a weekly radio commentary yeah. for K KWSU in Pullman, a public radio station. And, and people were not thrilled with that. But one day I um, said some things on air that I learned from you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, some of the local feminists went up in a sheet of flame. Yeah, yeah. And I found myself... You were uh, a murderer. Uh, I was frog-marched to the to door. To ignite these... Yeah. Poor woman on a flame was really, you know, the act of a rampant man. Well, so here, here's the thing about, the, about that. It used to be that a vile person was someone who did vile things. Mm. Now we live in an era where a vile person is someone who causes other people to do vile things. That's a good point. <laughs> right. That's so if point, I say yeah. something like boys and girls are different yeah. and the rioting starts, yeah. Then I'm vile yeah, right. because I pre I precipitated all this right. vile, uh, and so consequently the the vile reaction can always be arranged. Yeah, yeah. right. They sure. all they have to do is get somebody whipped up, and yeah. and then you're Pay you're, them. you're you're ostracized. George Soros can help. Yeah, they have pallets of bricks delivered and whatnot. Yeah. So I uh, I said on the radio that um, basically in the nutshell argument that I uh, that I learned from you was that men are dominant. Men are dominant, and the only thing we can do by how we arrange our affairs is determine whether that dominance is going to be constructive or destructive. Yeah, right? Uh, we, can, we, can make, we can configure our laws in such a way as to make 
the inescapable dominance of males into a really bad thing. Mm. Or we can ar arrange it where their dominance is invited and made positive, where they where men build things instead of break things. Yeah, that's or, a very well put. Right. I, I, invisible man, I've made the point that, uh, you know, in these societies that were described by Daniel Patrick Moynihan and other sociologists as matriarchal because right. uh, the women ruled the family. There were the men, there were female-headed families. Uh, these supposed matriarchs all cowered in their apartments in fear of the depredations of teenage boys. It was really violent teenage boys who dominated those cultures in the inner city. Right. And, and so it, it, it didn't, uh, creating a ostensible matriarchy of, of financed by wealth, the welfare state, uh, I said, uh, these, uh, the fathers of the black family were cuckolded by the welfare state. Yes. Uh, didn't make men into non-entities, they made men into criminals. Into and gangsters. Gangsters. So, th so that's what, um, yeah, let's pursue that, for, pursue that for a minute. Let's say a young woman in the inner city gets pregnant and uh, in the old regime, there could quite likely be a shotgun marriage or some sort of yeah. arranged marriage yeah. that would come out of that. Yeah. But let's say the dad, the father of the child is 19 years old and has a job sweeping out a warehouse. Mm. If the federal government swoops in and says, we will provide you with payments, mm. provided you don't marry this guy. Yeah. Right. Because if you marry this guy, you're yeah. not, you're not eligible. If, yeah. Yeah. If, right. if, that's, if you, that's the welfare state. Right. So what, what they've done is they've subsidized Male, ir male irresponsibility. That's right. And they've liberated men. They purport to be liberating women, but in fact, they liberate men to exploit women. Right. So when including you, the men in the welfare state. Right. <laughs> one of your key one of your key arguments here is that civilization depends on male sexuality being subordinated to female sexuality. That's right. Right. And if female sexuality is subordinated to male sexuality, you have the ethics of a biker gang yep. or, or a boatload of Vikings. Yep, that's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well put. Um, <laughs> if you go the other way, then what happens is cities are built, yep. civilizations form, cultures, cultures emerge. Yeah, right. emerge right? Uh, but in order for men to give up the freebooting life of a pirate, uh, which has a great deal in it for him. There's a, there's something in that that appeals yep, to, yep. to the man. In order to surrender the perks of being a pirate or the perks of being a biker, uh, the open road in front of him, uh, you've got to give him something. Mm. You've, yep. <laughs> right? In any negotiation, you you yep, both yep. sides negotiate, yep, both right. sides surrender something. Yep. And what the community surrenders, what the community gives the man, is a constructive role to play, yeah, yeah. Uh, something to yeah, do. Yeah, is that is that a fair representation? Well, of? it's it's a fair representation. I don't stress. I mean, that's a negative way of seeing it. I mean, what I saying it. I mean, it's it's a perfectly legitimate and true statement. I just I prefer to say that the man uh, submits to the futurity implicit in the woman's body. That right. the man's only linked to the future passes through the womb of a woman without the fully enthusiastic cooperation of the woman right. the man cannot have children and thus he's biologically stranded right and he becomes uh, without any stake in the future anybody who can uh, know him and call him father he becomes a gangster as you put it right or a predator or or else uh, a pathetic member of one of the underclass right. sexual minorities. Either hopeless, either hopeless or ruthless. Yeah, yeah right. Right? So um, uh, I, was, I wanted to read you just a few. I'm, in one sense, I'm asking you to uh, 
stand by things you said in 1986? <laughs> it may be Prumi Selkin <laughs> in some cases. Right. <laughs> but most of them, she, she, I should, she was fine and she cooperated. But, she, but, but you know, I had to, <laughs> yeah. I had to fight, fight for through it. for a number of key points. So um, you, you're quoting Stephen Goldberg, uh, is he the inevitability of patriarchy? Yeah, he guy? wrote the inevit- He was a friend of mine who wrote the inevitability of patriarchy. So Stephen Goldberg has remarked, masculinity in the modern era is treated like sex in Victorian England, a fact of life that society largely condemns and tries to suppress, and that its intellectuals deny. Yeah, that's right. Right. And and I, as I add, I think after that, um, while uh, everybody denies it. The whole society is just convulsed with its various ramifications, such as crime or violence or guns or, or fast cars or whatever the manifestations of men rampant happens yeah. to be in a particular time. You, you say at the beginning of the, the next paragraph, the result is a society that at once denies the existence of natural male aggressiveness and is utterly preoccupied with it. Yeah. And, and so you see things like um, celebrities, movie actors, uh, releasing little commercials against guns, while all of them have made movies yeah. <laughs> that have a gunshot every, yeah. you know, they're, every 30 they're seconds. absurd with their total under, failure to understand guns. I mean, uh, the, I mean, my view is that the usual gun-happy uh, super pick is is a fantasy. It, right. it's, it's, it's a comic it's a, book. It's a male fantasy of guns going off everywhere without hurting anybody, and <laughs> it, it's yeah. it's sort of the Hollywood paradox. Right. So um, you also say a little later, most men and women know at heart that masculinity is no myth, that marriage largely depends on it and that civilization depends on marriage. So you've got a stacking, yeah, yeah, yeah. civilization means that ma- marriage is essential, but in order for marriage to cohere, you've got to have an honored place for masculinity. Right, that's correct. Um, so rather than, uh, so let's go to a phrase that's thrown, thrown around a lot today, which is toxic masculinity. <laughs> it seems to me, that the toxicity of masculinity is seen most clearly when it's absent. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah. the when fathers yeah. disappear from the inner city, yeah. well, the, it, the results are toxic. To- toxic. Masculinity. It's toxic masculinity. It's, it's long, long gone. Um, when um, you say, we've already touched on this, but the, you, you say at the beginning of chapter one, um, and it's interesting, the chapter one is entitled The Necessities of Love. And, and quite a lot of that was in sexual suicide. Right. And it's interesting to me that in your book, Knowledge and Power, the last chapter is basically on free markets and love. Mm. So you, it seems to me that the heart of your project is you're wanting to treat people as people and not as bipedal carbon units that, yeah, right. <laughs> that oh, produce so, yeah. so much, you know, so yeah, much right. money or so much yeah. income. A hierarchical universe, I affirm, in all my works from the beginning to the and end. And the hierarchy is bound together by love, not by coercion. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, you say at the beginning of this chapter, the crucial process of civilization is the subordination of male sexual impulses and biology to the long-term horizons of female sexuality. Right. So, let me summarize this and, and tell me if you would state it differently or, or fix it. But um, a man's sexual cycle is very short. Right? Mm-hmm. It's from arousal to climax. Mm-hmm. A woman's sexual cycle is from arousal to when the kid graduates from college. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Right? So you're looking yeah. at a long term, and, and then yeah, actually... Well, this is what I mean. It, it lends futurity to the male... Uh, testosterone-driven aggressiveness and initiative, and it ties it to the future of the race. It gives testosterone a place to grow. Yeah. uh, As opposed to being like testosterone. in every passing encounter. Or, yeah, like tumbleweed. So testosterone can be like tumbleweed, or it can be like an oak tree. Yeah, all right. 
right? Good. So, so, um, so when you when you have uh, a, a man subordinate his sexual interest to the woman's, and intelligent men do this knowing what they do, right? Yeah, they, yeah. In, intelligent men know that they need a woman, yeah, 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 yeah. right? And foolish men who might not know that, but who are in a society that encourages them that way, yeah, right. are blessed beyond their, yeah. their, uh, what they've thought of. Well, they gain the connections to the future too, and they might not realize them until the children are growing up and they begin to recognize that their biological future, their connection to the future of the race on earth is dependent on a woman and her children. A preacher named Mark Driscoll once said that men are like trucks. They drive straighter and better with a heavy load. So yet because sexual liberals deny the differences between the sexes, their explanations of why there are marriages and why marriage is needed and desired ignore the central truth of marriage that it is built on sex roles. Yeah. Right. So you can't just have two citizens yeah, right. marry. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why uh, homosexual, I call it same-sex mirage, yeah. is simply trying to uh, you're you're trying to put two things together that don't cohere. It just is not the same thing. It, it's it's not marriage. It's some kind of companionate mutual masturbation society that gets sanctified. Right. Right. By society. I think Abraham Lincoln was once asked, or or he once asked, how many legs would a sheep have if we call the tail a leg? <laughs> and the person said five, and he said, "No, it's still four. It's still four. <laughs> right. Doesn't that, matter. That's ruthless truth. Right. It doesn't matter what we call it. Right. You say this is still in the same chapter. In evidence, they cite men's greater earning power as if economic productivity were a measure of social control rather than of social service. And that seems to be coming yeah. back to your theme yeah. of love. Yeah, love and altruism is the heart of capitalism. And yeah, so a man makes money not because he wants to go home and sit on a pile of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. He makes money because he's, uh, cultures, are, cultures are built by men who have families to feed. Yeah, that's right. And, and most, most of the time you ask a man why he goes to work and he'll take out a picture of his wife and kids. That's, that's just... Right. So um, the evidence, in fact, is so hugely voluminous that our sex experts could be excused for their confusion if all the material, without important exception, did not point in the same direction, that from conception to maturity, men and women are subjected to different hormonal influences that shape their bodies, brains, and temperaments in different ways. Yeah. And I would now, in writing it again, I'd add genetic information and hormonal influences that derive from the genetic programming of men and women. I mean, this is the real contribution of DNA and the biogenetic revolution. So um, since you wrote this, obviously the whole trans movement has erupted. And I'm wondering why, uh, if, a, if a man can just declare himself a woman and, and not only declare himself a woman, be treated as a woman, and within his first year, like Bruce Jenner, be declared to be the woman of the year. <laughs> Being a woman is apparently easy. Anybody can. <laughs> so a man can just waltz in and let me show you how the let me show you how this is done, ladies. Uh, so he comes in and does that. Um, that I, I've wondered why don't they start this next great leap in science, why didn't they start in the vet schools? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Why, why didn't they start with making a bull into a, you can make a bull into a steer, yeah, but yeah. why don't they make a bull into a cow? Why don't we work on it yeah, there so, first? It, yeah, would seem, right. it would seem to me. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, a completely despicable kind of, movement. It has no virtues whatsoever except its nihilist threat to the structure of society. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I think I've, the estimate that people have 
made is a third of transsexuals end up committing suicide. I mean, wow. it's, it just is right. an egregious violation of, of the human being and the facts of life. It really shows that there are no limits to the you know, pernicious um, malice and destructiveness of feminism, that and they actually want to transform uh, do you think little t kids that hardly, that are all necessarily confused about their sexuality, everybody is in, in early years, and exploit these little opportunities to really destroy people's lives. I mean, destroy, if you make somebody a transsexual, you destroy their lives. I've, I've been, uh, you know, I've actually seen it, and uh, there's a great economist, a really great one, who's, I, I don't think I'll, name him or her because it, it would be, you know, a, invasive, invasive. She or he is a great, it's he, he is a great economist and has helped me a lot. And I've been on panels with the so-called her and the poor person is just hopeless. She can't talk. She's shaking. She's, she's, it's just a miserable thing to see and uh and she's killed her she 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 killed Des herself destroyed herself it's it was a form of suicide to destroy her male character identity and, and identity and and uh, impose some totally spurious hormonally fostered fake femininity right one of the and uh, she's got great big shoulders and she you know it's just <laughs> sort of a uh, it's just a, a joke yeah so but it's just a, a very sad joke well I, I wanted to ask you you mentioned feminists earlier I know that there's been some conflict among some feminists some feminists are entirely on board with the whole revolution you know the, every the yeah. the entire sexual revolution in your experience have a significant number of feminists have have they had second thoughts? Well, I I, I used to debate feminists all over the place, and and uh, I went up to um, Canada to debate Germaine Greer, who was the most flamboyant and probably most successful of all the feminist authors of that era. She wrote The Female Eunuch, and mm -hmm. she was glamorous. She went out with Warren Beatty. She was you know she was a uh, a flamboyant, a attractive, articulate intellectual from Australia who made her career on the female eunuch. I had to debate her in Canada, and we had we debated, and and I sort of figured I'd won. But anyway, <laughs> so but she then invited me out to dinner, and uh, I, I I was happy to go out yeah. to dinner with Jermaine Greer, and we went up to the rotating restaurant on the top of Hyatt or whatever it is in Montreal, Toronto, I can't remember where it was. And then uh, she took me, uh, after, afterwards, uh, she took me, she invited me back to her hotel room. And uh, so I went, went back to her, her hotel room and we talked and she said she wanted to show me something. And she, went reached below her bed and brought out a little box and it was full of baby clothes that she had crocheted I believe or was in some technique uh -huh. they were beautiful little baby clothes and and uh, she not what you expected not <laughs> what I expected and she told me uh, you know this was what she really felt and that uh, this debate we'd had was really uh, just a disguise for her real longing for maternity. And then she wrote a book called Maternity, which did pretty much retract her, her militant stuff. feminism. So, so that's a case of right. one who, who really did, she was the smartest one, and mm -hmm. so she could figure it out. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Therefore, you say, therefore in every human society, the man has to bring something to the woman. He has to perform a service or give a gift. At the very least, he must offer more than his own urgency, or he will not even be able to gratify the woman sexually. 
No, I don't think that's right. If all a man brings is his own urgency, basically the woman is being turned into a babysitter or a perverse, <laughs> a perverse mother. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, that is really right. That's a good way to put it. In general, this is a, so this might be a hot one. In general, the successful woman demands that her man be even more successful than she is. In fact, the more successful a woman is in her job, the larger tends to be the gap between her earnings and the earnings of her still more accomplished husband. Yeah, well, that is a, r a rule of thumb. It, it, you, you look around you and you will find that many of the most successful women, a majority of them are married to yet more successful men. And there's, these are the two income couples that... Uh, power couples. Power couples or whatever that, that r result in this skewing of uh, income distribution in mm -hmm. most societies. This is an unexpected effect of feminism. It was supposed to be part of an egalitarian movement, but the real result of it was to skew the distribution of income uh, so drastically if you, in many um, of societies affected by it. What would you think of this uh, distinction uh, of between patriarchies, different kinds of patriarchies? Yeah. There might be a patriarchy that regards the two sexes as being two lines, like the men are here and the women are here. And the person assumes that any given man can be the leader and the, the head of any given woman, yeah. which is absurd. Yeah. What if we did two lines, like a line here and a line here, where a highly accomplished woman is going to look for someone in her league or above, yeah. she's not going to marry down. Yeah. So that's I'll, that's true, right? And or at least not on purpose, yeah. <laughs> right? She. Um, so if Queen Esther married a hot dog vendor on the streets of Susa, <laughs> yeah. well, that well, would not be a successful match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So a woman doesn't. You you said earlier sex roles and sexual nature. Women have a particular sexual nature that affects more than just the act of sex. It has to, it colors everything yeah. that they well, see. Well, they, I mean, they play the absolutely pivotal, indispensable role in assuring the future of survival of the race. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they begin with an impregnable superiority. Right. And, and, uh, and to compensate for this sexual supremacy that women hold, men have to perform acts in the world. Uh, their sexuality is extroverted into the world in one way or another, whether in destructively in violence and disruption and aggression or constructively in the great uh, achievements of civilization. Basically, you're saying that the woman has intrinsic sexual superiority, and so the man, to compensate, must accomplish extrinsic yeah, outside of right. himself. Yeah. He's got to go land on the moon or, yeah, or, or whatever. That's how he sees it. And so, and the woman doesn't want to surrender uh, her uh, superiority, doesn't want to surrender her position to just anybody. Yeah. She has a nature that wants to look up to, yeah. right? Well, she wants somebody who can actually protect her, provide and, for her, and support her. Uh, while she's bearing children and serving them and... Right. So, um, this is a little bit longer. In a world where women do not say no, the man is never forced to settle down and make serious choices. His sex drive, the most powerful compulsion in his life, is never used to make him part of civilization as the supporter of a family. So, when I got married in... 1975, I think the average age of marrying was around 22. Mm. That was the average. Yeah. And today it's around 28. Mm. Is it around 28? Yeah, yeah, it's around 28. So delayed marriages are a thing yeah. now. Uh, it used to be that it used to be that you would, if you were going to be middle class, upper middle class, or you wanted to go places, you would get through college 
you'd graduate and there'd be a bunch of May, June weddings uh-uh. right after right after you were done with college. Yeah. Uh, and now it's like people it's it's as though people can cannot be bothered. Well, people are forgetting the rules of civilization. They're forgetting the prerequisites of their very survival. Right. I like the story that Margaret Mead used to tell. People think of Margaret Mead as a liberal, but she understood all these intricacies of sexuality from her by the end of her life. Uh, some of her bestsellers were sensational books yeah. from the Samoas, right. Samoan Islands or whatever that misrepresented um, what was going on? What what was actually going on? But she uh, tells the story of uh, tribes of mariner warriors who learned how to build these wonderful seafaring kayaks that could take them off into the Pacific and uh, allow them to bring home large amounts of fish and to support mm-hmm. their societies back at home and. Uh, and as time passed, uh, they forgot how to make these kayaks. They, they, they forgot the key prerequisites of their civilization. And Margaret Mead described them sitting on the beaches, gazing out at the seas in perplexity as their tribe slowly went extinct and finally did die out. So somebody unpulled the plug out. Yeah, they just they forgot the crucial principles of that uh, rendered their society viable, and and that's what I think we're we're doing now. We're busy forgetting the crucial s- principles that make our society viable, and and thus we're becoming less viable. We aren't. We can't reproduce ourselves anymore. It's only immigration that uh, maintains our population. In many European countries, they're 50% below replacement level. There won't be any Italians in a few generations at the current pace of uh, reproduction. So it's, it's a serious thing when, when the sexual constitution, as I depict it, uh, collapses. It, it's, 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 it doesn't just result in some wonderful hedonistic liberated society. It results in a society that can't reproduce itself and ultimately dies out. So it's, what happens is that uh, the society that's sexually promiscuous becomes sexually enervated. Yeah. I think that pornography, pornography plays a role, the ubiquity of pornography. It mm-hmm. used to be that if in 1950, if you were a healthy young man and you were had a high sexual interest, the only way you could express that interest without disgracing your family mm. was to get find a young woman and marry her. Yeah. Right now, if you wanted to get pornography, you had to go to the seedy side of town. Mm. You had to do disreputable uh, things. You know, visiting yeah. prostitutes yeah. or whatever. I think the the more the real thing about pornography is. You know, it's is that it uh, is an attack on male sexuality. I mean, that it, say, say more it, about that. Well, I'd, the real um, men, men in the course of their lives see lots of naked female bodies. That's not a shocking and unexpected thing. New thing to find, and uh, this is what uh, you see in uh, old pornography. You saw female bodies. In contemporary pornography, it's you see male bodies and female bodies, but it's the male bodies that are the shocking novelty for most men, uh, erect male bodies. Right. And it, it's kind of, uh, it's a very erosive and demoralizing experience that accounts for a lot of the failures of masculinity, The homosexuality. It's really advertisements for homosexuality is what it is. That's how it's experienced, I believe. Right. And uh, so it's, it's a mistake to just pretend that, oh gosh, you see naked women in pictures or in videos. It's a ter- It's awful. You don't like that. It's, it's kind of degrading. But, but what, what pornography about, is about is about attacking male sexuality. It's part of the program 
to, to destroy uh, men's confidence and aggressiveness and sense of themselves as men. Mm -hmm. they, so you're saying there's and, a... And to worship the equipment of, of Somebody uh, else. other men. Right. So you... It's, um, it's, it's advertisements for gay... It's uh, advertisements for you don't measure up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you, you talk somewhere in here about uh, male performance anxiety. It's not just sexual performance, but a performance in the world. Yeah. Perf you know, you've got to accomplish things. You've got yeah. to feed your family. And you're saying that pornography enhances that performance anxiety. Yeah, and kind of and, and results in all kinds of perversity and social disorder. Right. So you're saying there's a transition between without uh, the old uh, pinup girl was one thing, yeah. not necessarily approving of it, but the, that was yeah, one thing. Right. This is... I kind of approve of it, but anyway, with, <laughs> I'm a man rampant, so right. maybe I'll, a, I'll, I'll, I'll get over it when I grow, grow up. <laughs> All right. So let's bring this in for a landing. When you're, you're making a distinction, I think, between that which is uh, normal, and, normal and fallen versus that which is bent. There's something, uh, there's something bent in, about feminism that's insulting to the woman's nature. Yep. There's something bent about hardcore pornography that's yep. insulting to the woman's and the man's yep. nature, yep. degrading yep. To, to them, um, as opposed to things that are, while not necessarily wholesome, are not demented. Yep. Is, is that a fair yeah, yeah. statement? This is a huge uh, topic, but it's one that I would encourage uh, all the viewers of this program to, to study, research, because these are the issues that are currently tearing our culture down. Yeah, yeah. Our, our civilization is being torn apart by uh, the failure of traditional uh, believers to understand the play that's being yeah, run. Yeah, right. And uh, I can't do... Uh, more than to commend Men in Marriage by George Gilder. This is a prophetic, insightful, far-seeing book. I thank you for writing it. Uh, okay. Thank you very much for this you conversation. Guys could, you guys could probably publish it again if you wanted to. You think I, so? bet, I don't know whether um, maybe Pelican cl clutches to it. I, I, I really don't know how Pelican Books is doing these days. Well, let's It's still let's kind of in print, I think. I think you can get... Uh, the paperback you you can get it on Amazon. It's certainly right. on Kindle, right. and so it still can be purchased. Well, which is something thank for you a book very much. that's fifty years old. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.